0: My is Kieran Desai from Shoesmiths, and uh, we're here today with my colleague, uh, Manu Mohan. Uh, and we're very pleased also to be joined by Anshuman Sackle, a partner at uh, Kaitan & Co. We're talking about uh, the UK-India commerce, and I thought I'd just introduce, by way of context, uh, the reasons for this discussion and the questions that we'll be addressing. The importance of UK-India commerce, I think, can be put into the following context. There's an increasing concern for all countries during the current economic uh, situation to improve commerce and business, and trade can be one of the routes uh, to doing so. And indeed, the UK and India have been looking for, and uh, in some respects, successfully obtaining trade arrangements, favorable trade arrangements with uh, trading uh, partners. So uh, in April of this year, uh, India and Australia signed a trade deal. Uh, and the view is that a deeper, and broader trade deal would be signed um, next. Uh, in January, uh, the UK issued a very uh, lengthy document, its tr- strategic review of trade uh, with India, And even in July of this year, uh, the Indian Trade Minister, um, Piyush Goyal, was upbeat and very positive about um, a trade deal being signed, perhaps around Diwali. But as we know, uh, that's come and and gone. Uh, But the EU has also announced uh, an intent to restart trade talks with India. Uh, And so there's lots of positive uh, language coming from um, the policy and uh, political stakeholders. But what we're going to do is to really focus on competition, law and policy uh, in this context. And then I should just remind ourselves that competition, law and policy has been a subject actually in the international trading environment since uh, the 1950s with the Havana Charter, which is a precursor uh, to the general agreement on, on tariffs and trade. And Today, some 90% of regional trade agreements contain provisions addressing uh, competition law or policy in some uh, manner. And the principal objective of competition provisions in trade agreements is to uh, ensure that the positive objects of the trade agreements are are not defeated by uh, competition um, either through anti-competitive practices or merger controls, or um, laws which defeat um, a fair playing field. So there are negative spillover effects um, and positive spillover effects that can occur, and these need to be thought about uh, and addressed. When countries make laws, whether it be merger control or uh, addressing abusive dominance, which can have effects beyond uh, their borders, uh, one example of a um, negative externality can be a decision taken by one competition authority, for example, in relation to digital markets, which has an effect beyond its borders. And, and we'll probably uh, address some of those later. And with that, uh, let me hand over to my colleague Manu uh, to raise some questions, which we'll be discussing between us.
1: Thank you, Kieran. And as uh, Kieran mentioned, the Indian and UK governments seem to be moving closer together and they're urging businesses as well to move and trade with each other. And as you know, the CCI has, over a decade ago, signed a memorandum of understanding with, the, with DIGI Competition, which is part of the EU. Now that the UK is no longer part of the EU and with the governments moving closer together, do you believe there is a need for CMA and the CCI, this competition agency in India, uh, to enter into such a similar agreement? Uh,
2: thanks. Thanks for that, Manu. And uh, thanks, uh, Kiran, and the team for organizing this and uh, having me over. Uh, an interesting question. Uh, so, CCI over the last decade has actually been very. Uh, proactive in engaging with uh, multilateral organizations, such as the OECD, for example, and even with a bunch of other competition regulators, their counterparts in various countries. Uh, So it may be the FAS in Russia, the FTC and DOJ in the US, the ACCC, the EU, as you mentioned, with DG Comp as well. Uh, So a number of different countries and a number of different regulators have actually uh, signed MOUs, and there has been uh, some level of cooperation. So, uh, definitely, uh, there has been uh, interaction between the CMA uh, and the CCI in the past as well, uh, and we expect that to continue. Uh, I believe in the near future, once the FTA perhaps has been uh, signed, uh, there sh- there could be definitely an MOU between the two regulators uh, as well. Uh, in the past, we have seen uh, these kind of MOUs lead to. Uh, significant capacity building measures uh, we've seen secondments happening from uh happening both ways so we've seen uh you know uh officers from uh a lot of other jurisdictions come into the cci and handhold the cci maybe not on matters or cases at hand but uh, generally in understanding what the best practices really might be uh, we've had uh, you know officers from the cci as well uh, go on secondments to uh, to brussels to uh, london as well in the past and uh as in the us as well so practically we've seen uh capacity building and exchange of best practices to be uh the best uh you know the most uh, valuable outcome from this there have been workshops as well which have been organized by uh these regulators with each other uh, over a period of time so those kind of uh discussions have happened in the past and hopefully that can continue with the cma as well down the line once the FTA has been put together. Thank you, Anshuman. Kieran. so
1: clearly, uh, according to Anshuman, this this benefits the regulators, uh, such cooperation between the authorities. But uh, why would other stakeholders uh, be interested in such cooperation? Uh, For example, why would parties to a transaction be interested in this cooperation?
0: Yeah, I mean, just to underline that point, um, I think these capacity building exercises technical committees, et cetera, which the Americans I know are very keen on um, when they've signed cooperation agreements with other competition authorities. I think what it all really builds to is an understanding. And that understanding has two elements. One is how do you formulate or express the problem that you see? And then obviously, secondly, how do you formulate and express the solution to the problem? And depending upon the uh, economies involved, there may be different understandings and different solutions. I think, for example, if you take the retail space, there's clearly a difference between the UK high street retail space, particularly with multi-product retailing, and India. There's all sorts of reasons why they may, uh, in India, have a different expression of a problem and also a different solution to that that problem. So I can see from the authority's point of view why uh, these provisions, these capacity buildings, technical exchanges and committees, um, exchange of information serve purpose. From the party's point of view, I think it can be seen either uh, positively or negatively, which probably means it's shades of grey. The positive is that with authorities communicating, they can uh, potentially arrive at similar understanding to the problem perhaps in relation to a global merger, where for example, India and UK is involved. And if they can also have a common solution, then that would be helpful, whether behavioral or structural remedy, for example, to a merger, it would be really helpful from the party's perspective if the uh, Indian CCI and the UK CMA can both agree that the left arm has to be chopped off as opposed to one saying the left arm and one saying the right arm, which is you know, really unhelpful from uh, the party's point of view, because they may believe only one divestment is necessary to address the global problem. So that's that's the sort of positive side of such coming together under uh, the scope of an FTA. I think the downside is where um, you may have quite different situations um, between the two countries, between the two trading regions and where you are having quite confidential conversations for example, with the UK in order to get your deal over the line from a regulatory point of view and perhaps the UK is playing quite hardball and you're going to have to offer more than you really wanted, Um, but it's your plan B and hopefully you don't have to go to plan C, Uh, whereas actually you're you're still in plan A as far as the CCI is concerned and, and for whatever reason, maybe getting a bit of an easy ride. So it would be less than ideal if information is exchanged between the competition authorities so that the CCI suddenly thinks, well, we can get a bit more um, blood out of the stone um, for our purposes. So there is that sort of downside um, at, at what can be quite sensitive points during a um, regulatory process. So that would be one thing. The other, just as an example of a negative, I think we have seen this, is where um, one competition authority, where admittedly perhaps the problems lie geographically, will be seen to be given the lead by all the other competition authorities who then just sit back, wait for the decision from the lead authority and then follow on. And that leads a little bit to a lack of discipline, if you will. You know, the CCI has grown up and should take its own decisions on its own merits and the CMI is grown up and should take its own decisions on its own merits. Uh, and there's a bit of a feeling, I think, amongst uh, parties to certain transactions in the past that um, everyone's just piled in after the legal authority has taken the the principal decision and just followed suit and sort of copycat uh, decision. So that can be unhelpful to to the uh, transaction um, outcome. I'll, I'll finish there. So Anshuman,
1: Kieran mentioned shades of grace, but it seems overall cooperation should be encouraged. Now moving to more shades of grey. So the the latest news in the press is that there are some significant amendments proposed to the Indian Competition Act, and one of these relate to timelines. So it says that the phase one time period will be reduced, and the phase two time period will be reduced. This means obviously more hard work for the for the regulator because it has to say come out with a decision. Uh, more quickly. Now, while uh, it, it's in, in some sense, uh, it would help in terms of ease of doing business in India, um, is there scope for apprehension that it may actually lead to a lengthier pre notification discussion or actually the CCI would demand more information from the parties? So, although there's technically a change in the review period, everything remains the same. So something which
2: is being quite hotly debated here as well. There's no, uh, you know, answer which is, uh, which is which is sort of uh, been able to, which everybody has been able to to come to terms with. But practically, uh, how we are seeing it, uh, just to lay the lay the the ground rules right now, it takes up the uh, commission within the first phase has a uh, thirty working day period to. Uh, close out a uh, transaction and to close out a matter. Uh, in the second phase, they end up uh, getting two hundred and ten days, uh, along with two thirty working day periods as well, which are administrative periods as well. So that's the general layer of the land right now. We also have something which is very unique in the country, which is a green channel route, uh, which actually about twenty five to thirty percent of all filings nowadays are going down that path. Now this is a this is unique because practically you there is no waiting period at all. As soon as you file. You get the approval uh, on the same day itself. The acknowledgement of receipt of the filing with the commission is the approval itself. It's so deemed approval. Uh, very few uh, transactions sh- should be able to get through this because there are significant conditions laid down for uh, going down that path. But uh, practically, these are the three routes available to us now. Uh, while in phase one, the timeline actually is 30 working days. What we are seeing and what we are see, uh, what the commission itself has put down in its annual report last year is that they are looking at a 17-day period, 17 working day period for approvals on average. Uh, this obviously does not include any clock stops that may there may be, but uh, of the 30 working day period, 17 working days is all they take to clear trans- transactions on average, which uh, I think is an excellent time period uh, for them to look at. Uh, we often work on uh, multi-jurisdictional matters as well, where India is practically one of the first regulators to, to give its, the CCI is the first regulator to give its uh, approval. So we have not seen a situation in the recent past uh, where a transaction is stuck because of the CCI. Um, keeping this in mind, <laughs> there is going to be, if this time period, as you said, uh, of, of uh, uh, 20 working days and 150 working days now is uh, brought into place, it's going to significantly cut down the, the time period uh, of a fairly accelerated system already. Uh, there are, so while while this is being seen as a, you know, a very uh, good move for business, it should improve timelines even, even more. Practically, we see some downsides to it as well. Uh, one downside, of course, is the fact that in the pre-merger, pre-filing consultation period, you might end up seeing uh you know more questions being asked and more details being asked uh which which really may not be uh, required for the commission's assessment at times uh it might be a more extensive period so it might be longer than what we see right now uh there is also uh, apprehension that in the event there is uh, significant information which is uh, pending and the commission's unable to complete assessment in the 20 working day period which they propose now you might see invalidations as well. So then the clock restarts all over, uh, which practically is a, a a fairly disastrous situation to be in. Uh, so that's something that we are, uh, <clears throat> very honestly, we were happy with the timelines currently. We hadn't, uh, and the feedback that we got from our clients as well who approached the commission over a period of time, we haven't really seen uh, Indian commission's timelines being a problem. Uh, this obviously will enhance uh and uh, increase uh, workloads but uh, it's something that time will tell how it really works out uh, but the intention behind of course behind the change of course is uh, to make sure that uh, business moves even faster so that's the that's the there are two sides to the coin to put it simply
1: sounds very encouraging uh, Anshuman. it seems like the cci is a cheetah among the regulators So moving to the UK, Kiran, I don't know whether you would think the CMA is actually the cheetah among the regulators, but at least it seems that there are some apprehensions when when parties uh, move to file a transaction before the CMA, Um, one because of the time periods involved, and the second uh, because the CMA seems to be um, trying novel theories of harm. Um, In such a scenario, uh, what, what would be your advice to the transaction advisors and the parties involved in the transaction? How can they facilitate a faster decision making process?
0: Yeah, thanks, Manu. There's a couple of key points to remember, and then it's working out how best for a particular matter to engage in the process. And I think the key two key points I would just raise firstly, it is, I'll say, technically, but nominally a voluntary procedure to notify in the UK. Um, The reality of that um, voluntary aspect is that if you decide to not notify, um, there are significant challenges to your transaction uh, should the CMA uh, take up jurisdiction on its own uh, initiative. Not the least, Um, you would be uh, required to keep separate the target and the purchase of business, um, having a significant management uh, and other uh, uh, effect on your ability to c- benefit from the synergies that you planned and, and other matters that you had anticipated to implement. So that is a big um, uh, challenge. This, the, the A related point with the voluntary is now uh, we have a regime in the UK called the National Security and Investment Act which is mandatory uh, pre-completion for a vast um, array of transactions. There's no um, market share or financial thresholds. Uh, It just has to be a transaction uh, which is falling within uh, any one of 17 sectors and the sectors are very broadly expressed. So if you are having to submit your notification under the mandatory NSI Act regime, then um, there's, I think, a good argument to say you might as well do your CMA uh, process um, as well. Uh, It's it's a uh, 40-day phase one process. So on the basis we're talking about most transactions are phase one. I think that's the sort of key reference point. Um, And it's a a very similar time period to the NSA, um, just a bit longer. The second point I think I'd raise as regards advisory aspects for engagement with the CMA process is, uh, and and Anshaman spoke about it, a pre-notification process. I mean, it is very important for two reasons. Um, Firstly, um, it is a way of expressing your story as you see it to the CMA. But guess what? They might have a different view or at least a slightly different take on it. And it allows you to properly um, consider that different viewpoint and address it uh, in your notification Uh, and thus allowing um, a smoother process overall, because when you do submit the formal notification, it should be addressing all of the issues, real or perceived, um that the uh that you and the authority has uh, has identified and that that definitely is an efficiency in process because otherwise you're halfway through the the phase one process and some issue comes up that is in the cma's mind that wasn't in your mind and it and it's a scramble to try to to address that and save the timeline um at least um to a material extent so that's the those I think, the two points I'd give. And, and just one, just by way of a process, again, to connect, for example, a CCI process and a CMI, CMA process. And this goes back to a, the former point about cooperation, is um, you really should be trying to tell the same story because if it's a global transaction, it's the same transaction. Um, and trying to tell two different stories to the, to the different regulators um, isn't very clever. You probably will get caught out. If there is, a uh, local characteristic that you are wanting to address, I mentioned retail earlier, then of course you'll be addressing different aspects of, or different concerns, but fundamentally the story should be the same. Otherwise, um, I think you're going to get caught out and just um, slow down uh, the process in terms of um, the timeline. Over to you. Thank you, Kiran. So now back to you, Anshuman.
1: So another, uh, I think, controversial topic is the proposed introduction of uh, uh, valley thresholds. So, I mean, this is not um, entirely new. I mean, the US has had uh, value thresholds for a long time, um, and some countries like Germany and uh, Austria have introduced it more recently, purportedly to catch um, digital giants. Now. One concern that uh, everybody could have is that this might lead to jurisdictional overreach, in that CCI might try to examine transactions that have really no effects in India. How do you think um, this would actually play out?
2: Thanks, Manu. Another very interesting question. Considering we've uh, we've had multiple queries come up on this as well in the recent past. Uh, so the the deal values record is an interesting proposition now in India uh it's principally being brought about because of a number of transactions uh escaping the commission's scrutiny in the recent uh, past uh be it uh, large transactions such as facebook and whatsapp uh and even domestic transactions involving local players like maybe somato and uber eats those transactions uh did escape uh, scrutiny because uh, india has uh a de minimis or a small target exemption available so in the event uh, the target in the transaction has uh, assets valued below a particular number or turnover uh, below a particular number in india then uh, in that situation you escape scrutiny altogether you have a blanket exemption uh, this was letting a number of transactions escape as i said uh, but a lot of these transactions involved companies which were fairly large in their operations. For example, uh, Facebook and WhatsApp, Uh, both of them have a significant presence in the country. Uh, So even even Zomato and Uber Eats, as I mentioned previously. So in a number of cities, you would find a presence of both of these uh, at one point in time. So practically the idea is to perhaps cover those kinds of transactions. Uh, You did mention digital uh, markets specifically, and that's what the anticipation was. So when we had seen uh, the draft, come out previously, uh, there was uh, speculation that it'll be more, this deal value threshold will be more towards uh, the digital markets, but the manner in which it has been uh, put together in the current amendments, uh, which are still uh, pending approval uh, of the parliament, (laughs) excuse me, uh, they do not really talk about, they're not really sector specific. So you can apply these uh, deal value thresholds to practically every sector. Uh, They are fairly, uh, open in terms of uh, how they will really apply and what the local nexus really would be uh, in and that local nexus question is still something which is open in terms of the fact that uh, the uh act the amendment itself which is being put together by the parliament uh would grant significant delegated powers to the commission to come up with what local nexus really would be. So we expect uh, not only on this issue, but a number of changes which are being brought about by the amendment to get, uh, you know, uh, clarified by the amendments, uh, which would be brought about to the combination regulations, for example, by the commission subsequently, once these amendments are passed by the government uh, in the in the parliament. So uh, while there is, uh, hmm. it's, we we're still awaiting the, the entire nitty gritty to be clear. Uh, it's not completely and amply clear for us to say how they will apply and what their scope of application really would be. But as we know right now, it's pan-sector. It's not really only digital markets. And secondly, uh, it'll be uh, there would be certain local nexus applied. If I can take another 30 seconds just to explain what local nexus has been looked at, how, how it has been looked at previously. We had a specific exemption previously which talked about uh, any transactions which had limited local nexus. They would not really be, uh, they could be exempt from notification requirements in India altogether. That was done away with because uh, the Commission felt that the thresholds which are provided in the Act itself always do have an India segment to it. So, in the event there are certain assets or turnover which are attributable to India and those get breached, that is local nexus enough for uh, the transaction to really get, uh, uh, you know, to trigger an approval requirement in India. So. Practically, we do expect some, uh, you know, bright line test to be made available uh, for judging that local nexus even now uh, in the near future. That's what I think would be the case.
1: So, Karen, it seems we have to wait a little bit more uh, for getting more clarity on this topic. Um, and sticking to this point of jurisdictional overreach, uh, it seems the CMA is also uh, testing the limits of. Um, jurisdictional overreach through market definitions, uh, et cetera. Uh, Do you think uh, the CMA is also testing these limits and and trying to grapple with this topic of trying to uh, avoid uh, not getting into those kind of uh, uh, loopholes where they fail to examine a transaction and then there's a general public outcry. How do you think this will play out in the UK?
0: I mean, it's a somewhat emotive language to say jurisdictional overreach, but uh, I think it would be fair to say that in many jurisdictions and at the international level like the OECD, there have been concerns expressed about the inability of competition regulators to be able to review, um, let alone then decide substantively, on mergers in uh, the, the digital uh, market space, and so I think that's part of the genesis of um, certain decisions in the UK. The other um, source for the for the alleged jurisdictional overreach in the UK is the test that has uh, existed um, forever in the UK. Um, which uh, concerns um, the presence of the purchaser and the um, target and as we all know most uh, jurisdictional tests identify presence by using a market share test Um, and if you read the English rules too quickly Um, you think it's also a market share test, but in fact, it's not, it's a share of supply test, which is um, quite different. And it's the uh, difference uh, which I think surprises uh, many, um, perhaps not so used to um, the the, uh, subtleties of the the difference between market share and share of supply. So we have had decisions uh, recently, on this point, uh, Sabre Fair Logic um, in relation to airlines, uh, Roche Spark in relation to, to pharma and Google, uh, and Looker in relation to online business. And I think, just in the interest of time, I'll, I'll just identify one of those. So, the, the Sabre Fair Logic. And um, so, they're both active in a certain type of uh, software. A functionality to do with um, airline, airline traffic. That's all, kind of all we need to know. Um, the difference is that um, whilst Sable was clearly doing this in, in the UK, it wasn't obvious that FairLogic was doing so. What in fact, Fair FairLogic was doing was uh, engaging in this activity on behalf of various of its uh, customers outside of the UK, one of which was American Airlines. American Airlines had an interline agreement with uh, British Airways. And in order to support that from a technical point of view, there was an arrangement between uh, AirLogic and British Airways. And on that basis alone, um, the CMA reached the conclusion that the shared supply test um, was met. They were both engaging in the activity of uh, X or Y, fill in the X and Y however you wish, uh, in the u k. And, and therefore the presence um was was found the you know the jurisdictional um, or territorial nexus. Um, I think that that was um an interesting um, ex- uh, let's say say extension or, or imaginative application of the um, of the rules. Um, but it does underline the the subtleties and differences, if I may, between the share of supply test in the UK uh, and the market share test, which applies to most uh, uh, other jurisdictions um, in the world.
1: All right. Uh, in this day of uh, innovation, Karen, it's uh, good to hear that the competition authorities are also imaginative.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so now moving to you, Anshuman, there's another topic that has been debated, which is about, uh, the control definition. Now it's a very, uh, let's put a legal speak here. So I mean I understand that uh, as the rules currently stand, a transaction can be reviewed uh, by the Indian Computation Authority only if there is a change of control. Now the proposed amendment to this uh, suggests that uh, this control definition may be uh, tweaked. If if this goes through, do you think it would have a negative effect on acquisition of minority shareholdings?
2: Thanks, Manu. Uh, practically, uh, it's interesting to see how the, the the definition of control has evolved over the last uh, few years. And actually practically, not just the last few years, it's been evolving practically since the time uh, merger control uh, started up in India, which is around 2011. Uh, in fact, uh, in 2011-12 uh is is when the commission spoke about control for the first time uh in fact it was my first case uh, ever in magic control uh and uh they spoke about uh decisive influence being the being the standard for you know looking at control per se but uh over a wheel of time that has changed um uh, the commission in the last four or five years uh, maybe even more than that has been looking at the uh, at the threshold of material influence which basically means uh it's the lowest degree of control for them uh, it was enough uh, you know for them to consider uh, control being transferred so in the event there were uh, affirmative voting rights which led to uh, or, or veto rights which led to uh, appointment of kmp's appointment of uh, uh, auditors uh, changes to the charter documents of the company uh those very basic general uh, rights could amount to transfer of control. Uh, We have seen that happen in the last few years in any case. Uh, What is happening now through the amendments practically is formalizing and codifying what the practice actually has been. So uh, we don't really expect it to be something which will change the position too much. Uh, It's something which (laughs) generally has been the standard for a while now. So we don't expect that the uh, the actual codification of the standard now in the law itself would really lead to uh, any change in practice again. So that's, that's where we are at. Uh, it could be that there could be some confusion regarding how groups would be looked at and how possibly the <clears> threshold <throat> assessment would happen as to uh, value assets and turnover of the groups involved in the transaction. But that's one point which perhaps the commission will throw clarity on uh, as time goes by and before the uh, amendments are actually brought into place and given effect to. But that's, apart from that, practically in terms of uh, assessing control, uh, it's been, it's, it's, as I said, pretty much uh, codifying the standard, which is already laid down. Thank you, Shumay. Kiran, this is a topic that the CMA
1: has looked at for years now. And is there something that parties can learn from the decision and practice of the CMA in regard to minority shareholders?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, you're right, Manu, The This test of material influence has been, in, again, in the UK legislation since, since the beginning. So there is a lot of case law, if you will, on it. Although um, I think it'd be fair to say that every time it's used, it tends to bite parties in the backside because they didn't quite anticipate it. Um, And and just to sort of set the vocabulary clear, um, everyone understands the concept of de facto or or evidence factual control, and everyone understands the concept of de jure or legal control. And it's when neither of those forms of control are um, present that one turns to material influence. And I think um, over the years... Um, There have been lots of cases and you can point to um, particular elements that are likely to be more uh, relevant to a determination of material influence. But really, um, it is every case is going to be different. So I suspect I'm sort of reminded of um, um, medieval artist Albrecht uh, Dürer, who who famously drew, drew a rhinoceros, although he'd never seen one. Uh, If you ask competition lawyers to come up with what does material influence and what are the key aspects, you probably each uh, would draw a different picture. Um, In the UK, most recently, we had uh, Amazon and Deliveroo as a case. So when you're looking at, was it um, de facto or de euro control, the basic point was they had a 16% equity holding, so you wouldn't look to either of those to be satisfied. Um, I think it would be not unfair to suggest that the CMA just wanted to look at that case um, and therefore really did rummage around for anything and everything that might be uh, able to be categorized as contributing to material influence. And I say contributing because I think that's an important um, element that has come out of that case. No single characteristic could be regarded as um, giving uh, or or, or being characterized as granting material influence, but you add them all up and the aggregate comes to uh, material influence according to uh, the CMA. So that that was even looking at, at subtleties about the presence of. Amazon on the board I think it had one member out of six if I recall six or seven board members um, and the suggestion that given Amazon's experience generally a lot of informal contacts and advice would be given um, to deliver, and, and, and that's a sort of influence and it seems to be part of the package of material influence that CMA will take on board so um, I think you do need to be careful I think you've in a very boring quote-unquote transaction, where you were wondering um, you wouldn't need to necessarily worry the issues. I mean, if it's just a standard widget factory buying another one, unless you've got very high market shares, I just don't think you'd need to worry too much about this. So that's just kind of a weird one. Where if you think you do or you might have a substantive problem, you should worry about whether there's a material influence if you've got a minority stake. But if you don't have a substantive problem, then then you probably don't have to worry about it so much.
2: So practically, you know, in India, uh, one director out of six, as you explained right now, that uh, would one director by himself, whatever the number of the directors on the board might be, would still constitute control under Indian law. There have been actually discussions and in the when we are looking at overlaps per se for filing a form, we actually are required not only to look at directors, but even observers. Uh, so, there are, you know, the, the position has gone down even and gotten diluted even further. So not just directors, but even observers in Indian law can, can be considered to be, uh, you know, material influence in itself. So uh, practically what has happened is that the commission now through this amendment is bringing about the term material influence. But what exactly constitutes material influence is something which can get diluted over a period of time as well. So it's still dynamic and open for the commission to really regulate and look at. And
1: do you have any any final comments uh, for a minute or so on what stakeholders can do to let's say inform the commission about these proposed amendments how how can they communicate their apprehensions or or requests for clarifications
2: so right now the commission is not really involved it's these these amendments have been brought about by the by the government and placed to, uh, before the parliament the parliament actually has uh, uh, has pushed them towards a standing committee on finance which is currently looking at uh, uh, what these amendments should be and deliberating upon them, uh, they have reached out to certain uh, industry bodies uh, and uh, certain uh, uh, you know uh, stakeholders as well for their uh, inputs on the uh, on the uh, proposed amendments. So we are expecting that in the winter session of Parliament, which starts actually later this month, uh, we should uh, see the bill tabled again uh, for debate and discussion. Uh, hopefully some of the suggestions which have been sent across to the standing committee on finance uh, would get uh, uh, passed on to the parliament as well and we'll see perhaps a slightly amended draft from what we've already seen uh, and some of the uh, clarifications and uh, which have been sought would be hopefully incorporated in some of the positions that the government is looking to take vis-a-vis the act would also be uh, perhaps clarified and put uh, put in a better way so uh, that's what the hope is and uh, we are actually expecting the uh, amendment bill to be passed by the parliament in the winter session itself uh, so hopefully by the end of uh, this calendar year or maybe in the first half of the next calendar year we should have these bills in force as well and karen talking
1: about bilateral inv- uh, investments in the uk and india is there something that you would like to add to parties contemplating transactions that would affect uk and india
0: I mean, I think we should note that the uh, the India is uh, at least for the last several years has been one of the largest uh, in terms of transaction volume uh, investors in the UK, uh, and one would hope that uh, talk of an FTA would only at least support and possibly increase that sort of level of investment um, by uh, uh, significance of transaction volume that tends to suggest these are sort of small and mid-cap investments. And I think what I would just say is that whilst as an investor, you might think your small or mid-cap transaction isn't really interesting to the Competition Authority in the UK, um, be aware that at least in certain sectors like digital markets, um, it it really could be interesting. So think about those elements that we talked about um, earlier. And don't forget the uh, National Security Investment Act, which is um, a mandatory regime. And if you are notifying under the NSI Act, uh, it will be brought to the attention of the CMA. So um, there's going to be full tra- there is full transparency there on, on that aspect. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Anshuman. Thank you very
1: much. Bye. Thank you.